0: This morning we're going to be in John 17, 1 through 5, so you can begin to make your way there. If you don't have a a Bible, you can find one in the back of the pew in front of you, and if you don't don't have one, we'd be happy for you to take that home uh, as a gift. If you're unfamiliar with how to use that, uh, you can find a table of contents at the front of the Bible, and that's going to let you know where the Gospel of John is and the large numbers are going to be chapters and the small numbers are going to be verses. And again, we're in John chapter 17, verses 1 through 5 this morning. Now, John 17 is a really interesting uh, chapter kind of contained in the gospel. It gives us a decidedly different picture and window into the relationship of the Trinity. than we get elsewhere and, and beyond that, we, we see the intimacy contained in Christ's prayer and And it really kind of comes to us in three different segments. So in one through five, Jesus really has a prayer for himself. And so he's praying and he's asking God for something specifically for himself. In verses six through 19, Jesus prays and he's praying uh, for the disciples particularly. And so he looks at uh, the men and women around him and he's praying something specific for them. And then uh, the latter part of the chapter, 20 through the end of the chapter, he's praying for us. And and so we're going to get to see that here in a couple of months when we take the Lord's Supper again uh, as we journey through the Gospel of John. But today, as we look at this, the primary overriding sense of urgency that Jesus is praying for is uh, for his glory and for God's glory. And so it kind of leads us to ask the question as we reflect upon the reality of this in our lives that in some sense, I think for many of us, uh, glory is this abstract understanding that's just kind of, it's, it's up there, it's distant, it's remote, and, and we really begin to wonder what difference does it make in my life? What difference does it cause me in the, in the way that I think, in the way that I live? Well, I think you're going to see that by Jesus' example, in the midst of this prayer, he's beseeching the Father that he might be glorified so that he can turn around and give more glory to God. So it leads us to understand that, man, there are certain times in our lives where we know difficulties are coming, right? And so you've been told that there is a, um, because of the downturn in the economy, there's going to be... Um, uh, kind of a letting go of a number of people and, and you've been told and you're aware that, that your job is on the line. You, you know that you're going to lose your job. You know that you're in this group of people who's going to be unemployed shortly. And so at some distance out there, some weeks or months, you know that you have difficulty on the horizon. And so you're able to prep for it. You're able to plan for it. You know that you've got a, a surgery coming up. You know that you, you know any number of things you know out there that's coming, a difficult season. You know you're enrolled in a semester that's going to be particularly hard. You know that you're going to have to have a conversation with somebody that's going to be decidedly unpleasant. You know there's a big decision that you have to make that that when you make it, it's going to have an exacting toll on your life and in the lives of those around you. And so we're able to prep. We're able to plan for those upcoming difficulties and upcoming difficult seasons. But there are also uh, things that, that are unexpected, right? Things that, that we already have to be prepared for when they hit us. We already have to be prepared when we receive the bad news that, we, that we've been given a terminal diagnosis. We already have to be prepared when we unexpectedly walk in and we're given our papers for termination. We already have to be prepared when these things happen. And in essence, for the Christian's life, God gives you an opportunity to already be prepared and kind of have this right disposition in the midst of those things that are upcoming and in the midst of those things that are unexpected. And what that is, is to live a life decidedly set, purposely driven, seeking to glorify God in everything you do. This is the resolve he calls us to that we would look at all those things that are upcoming and all those things that are unexpected and says, no matter what comes my way, I'm going to live my life in the mundane, in the ordinary, so that when the unexpected hits me, it doesn't shake my response. And the only way to do this is by dedicating ourselves in the midst of the ordinary. Now, let's follow Jesus' words here and see if we can discover a pattern for how this might be possible. Let's read 1 through 5. John writes, he says, When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God. And Jesus Christ, whom you have sent, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. And so Jesus echoes, uh, or John kind of records in a very real way, the same kind of response that Jesus had in, in his discussion of Lazarus. And so Jesus takes this posture, right? He looks up at the heavens, and so he's not looking to find God. Hey, there you are. Where'd you go behind that cloud? Okay, I see you now. I found you. Let me talk to you. He's giving us instead the understanding that in the midst of this prayer, he is focused and he is directed. He is intimately connected with the Father. So it's in the midst of this connection, in the midst of knowing what comes next, he knows the cross is the very next thing for him. He's been preparing the disciples for this. He's been gathering their their emotional energy, equipping them with the knowledge they need to know to weather this storm. And he says this, Father, the hour has come. Now, this phrase within the Gospel of John, the dis- discussions of what the hour is, go all the way back to chapter 2. You remember, Jesus is at a wedding, and, and something bad has happened. It's clearly not a Baptist wedding. They've run out of wine, and so they go to Jesus, and they say, Oive, what to do? We've run out of wine. And what is his response to his mom? He says, Mom, why are you telling this to me? My hour has not yet come. And this has been the repeated refrain that he's echoed throughout the course of the Gospel of John, roundabout until chapter 12. In chapter 12, his refrain changes. And in verse 23, Jesus answers. Um, some Greeks who've come up to him right after the triumphal entry, and he says, the hour has come for what? For the Son of Man to be glorified. And he tells us what that means. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Jesus recognizes that this hour has come is the hour that costs him his life. Jesus recognizes that it is for this purpose, for this express reason, that God has sent him to earth. Namely, that he died. So all of Jesus' life, he understood this express purpose. All of Jesus' life, he understood that his life was an opportunity to demonstrate what it is to live for the glory of the Father, So in this moment, he says, glorify your son. In essence, he's saying, would you clothe me in splendor? And would you prepare me for what I'm getting ready to walk through? It's a prayer of dependence out of necessity because he recognizes that thing which is ahead of him requires the intimate union with he and the father if he's to move through and to glorify God appropriately. Recognize this in his understanding and his prayer for glory. Jesus' prayer for glory is not selfish and doesn't end with him. Look what he says. He says, glorify your son. Why? So that the son may glorify you. Man, how transformative is that in the midst of our lives if our prayers for preparation, if our prayers uh, for healing if our prayers for abiding, if our prayers for perseverance, and all these things are tempered in such a way as to say, God, would you help me to journey through this? Would you help this to be true so that I might glorify you? Man, this is a selfless prayer. And this is the prayer, and this is the heart pattern of where Christians should be, amen? That we want our lives, we want my thoughts, I want my heart, I want the way I use my money. I want everything I touch, everything I think, and everything I do to redound in praise and glory and adoration to God. And even, listen to this, even those times I fail. Because that prayer right there, God, would you let all my thoughts and all my money and everything I do and everything I say and all those, Uh, this week I'm going to run into something that I do and I'm going to fail at it. I'm going to purpose to go out and engage every lost person I meet to and share the gospel with them, and I'm going to meet somebody, and I'm going to look at my watch and say, I'd rather not, and I'm going to fail. I'm going to say, God, would you let my speech be this way? Would you let my heart be this way? And then I'm going to go home, and I'm going to be ugly to my family. I'm going to fail, and so are you. And in those moments of brokenness and in those moments of weakness, we come closer to understanding the grace and mercy of the Father And we're able to glorify him in having received his forgiveness in the midst of our failures. God, would you carry me through so that I can glorify you? Would you lead me through so that I can glorify you? Now, why does the son want to glorify the father? And in what ways? He says in verse 2, he says, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Now think of the power in that moment. Most of us in this place, we are acutely aware, we know, you've been in church on Easter, you've heard the Bible story, that Jesus came, he lived a perfectly sinless life, that he died, right? But Jesus tells us in John 10, 18, that no one takes his life from him, but he willingly lays down his life. Jesus, in this moment, is not caught up in the strength and authority of the mob, Jesus has authority over all flesh. So think about this. The mob comes in. Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane. He's gathered with the guys who can't stay awake. And they come up to him with torches and with clubs. And they're there to crucify him. In this moment, he knows in his heart he has authority over all flesh. He could say to them, leave and be gone. They would have no choice but to leave and be gone. He could say to them in this moment, bow down and worship me. They would have no choice in that moment but to bow down and worship him. Jesus has authority over all flesh. But so that God would be glorified, so that the plan and providence of God might be fulfilled, he willingly submits himself to the will of the Father. They don't use authority. They don't use force that Jesus has not given them to use. This is the depth of his love on display. This is the depth of his grace and mercy towards us sinners on display. In a very real sense, you and I were there with the mob, with torches and clubs, calling out for his blood. He lovingly surrenders his life. He lovingly lays it down. Why? It says, to give eternal life to all whom you have given. You have to think when Jesus considers his life, and he just thinks about all the different events that are going to take place. He says, I remember being a child in this, and I see this coming, and and here's this event, and this is walking on water, and this is teaching the disciples this, and this is reteaching the disciples this, and this is reteaching the disciples this, and this is reteaching the disciples this. But all of it has the cross in mind. To every event, every episode, every person he talked to, every miracle he performed, every single one of them is directed and moving and walking towards the cross with laser-like focus. Every single one of them. Every single one of them having authority over every person he encounters. Every single one of them having authority over every situation he journeyed into. And every single one of them bound up to extend eternal life. The shedding of his blood. through dying on a so the question becomes, what then is eternal life? And verse 3 seeks to answer it for us. He says, that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Think of the power, in essence, in this verse. He says, What is eternal life? He says, This is eternal life. It is knowing God in his Son Jesus. Knowing God in his son Jesus. When we think about it in terms of of just kind of the, the whole Bible and the corpus of, of, of what is there, the entire body of the thing, we see Moses interact with God in Exodus 34. The Lord passes in front of him as Moses is held safely in the rock, and it says, the Lord proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression. This is what it is to know him. It's not just some notional idea where would be similar to this past week. I met some folks, uh, some of whose name I remember. And, and so when, when they walk up and they introduce and they say, hi, I'm Bob, and hi, I'm Sally, I know something about them. I know Bob has unusually soft hands for a man. And so I'm wondering, what type of moisturizer does he use? <clears throat> I know that Sally's wondering what type of man I am with my weak grip. And, and so she knows something of me in the midst of this. But I don't know them. I don't know what rests in the midst of their heart. I don't know what difficulties they're shouldering right now. I don't know what this past week has carried for them. I don't know what their conversation that morning looked like. I don't know them. God is not satisfied with us merely knowing some things about him. Memorizing tomes, memorizing verse after verse. Meditating on them all outside an intimate knowledge of him. satisfied with knowledge of him, but never knowing him. He calls us, beckons us, begs us, extends us, and directs all of eternity with its focus so that you might know him. Don't miss him. Don't miss the Savior for the knowledge of who God is. Know him him. He says, more than we just know him, he is the only true God, that there is no other God, that there is no other one worthy of our worship. He said, and to know Jesus Christ whom we have sent, the Bible tells us and we see evidently and plain that Jesus reveals the Father and that Jesus reveals the love of the Father. It's been the overarching story and narrative of the Bible that God is restoring lost and wayward humanity to himself. And he does this through the person of Jesus. It is in the purpose, the plan, and the providence of God that he would send his son Jesus so that we might be restored to the Father. That our sins might be forgiven. So Jesus knows this. He hears this. He, he, he takes this on. This is the very embodiment of who he is in his life. And he faithfully walks it out. He faithfully walks it out says i want to glorify you you've given me this work to do verse 4 says i glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do but jesus looks back at all the things he has done and he looks forward to the difficult thing that awaits him the difficult thing that is coming in the next 24 hours in the certainty That he knows that this will be accomplished allows him in the midst of this to say, I have already accomplished. it." This is the steadfast nature of his love for wayward humanity to be restored to God through the blood of Jesus. Amen. He says, I've already done it. Jesus glorifies God in doing the difficult thing God has called him to. Surrendering his life for wayward people like you and me. Many of us, at the point when we first learned about Jesus, were completely indifferent. We had real stuff in our lives we wanted fixed. fix. We had real problems we wanted to address. We weren't so concerned and so bothered by some, some fancy misunderstanding about a false deity who doesn't really exist. We got real problems today. I got bills today. I got sickness today. I got issues with my spouse today. This is where our good God found us, indifferent and wayward, hard-hearted, and set against him. But in his love, he wooed us. In his strength, he won us. But I can tell you, some of us sit here today, you doubt. You hear of this good God, and you say, he has no part in me, no part in my life. You hear of this good God. You hear tell of His mercy, and you say, "I see none of it in my life. I'm trying so incredibly hard. I'm working and working and working, and I just don't see it. I just, I just don't think it's actually real. I don't think it exists. Stop working. Stop struggling." Receive the love that God extends to you. He's not waiting for your doubts to be gone. He meets you in the midst of them. In a very real sense, you're the man he met at the bottom of the hill who said, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. And he will. He will. He invites you in. He invites you to come to know him. He invites you to join At the end, the mission Jesus sought to fulfill, everlasting life, the forgiveness of sin. This is the work that God the Father gave to Jesus to do. So Jesus there in verse 5, he knows he's going to complete it. He knows he's going to do it. And he has this prayer before God. He says, and now, Father... Glorify me now in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Something we can learn about Jesus theologically that we come to understand about him in this. Number one is that he is pre-existent. That Jesus has always existed. It's not as if God looked down from heaven and said, man, they are a hot mess. I got to do something. Who's sitting around not doing anything? Jesus! Jesus! Come on. It's in the preexistence of God, it's in God's sovereign wisdom that in eternity past God purposed within himself to send the Son. John tells us this. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Jesus has always existed and always been with the Father. And then verse 14 we read, it says, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory is the only Son from the Father full of grace and truth. This Jesus, who existed eternally with the Father, took on flesh. Paul records in Philippians 2 the the, the answer. He fills in the mystery of what Jesus is talking about here in verse 5. So writing of, of Jesus in chapter 2 of the book of Philippians, Paul writes, and he says, speaking of Jesus, though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, greedily held on to. Jesus knew the mission ahead of him, and he knew the difficulty of it, so he divested of himself the glory due his name. Hebrews 1.3 tells us that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. He doesn't merely passively reflect the glory of God, but he has in and of himself his own equal glory. It goes on, he says, but he emptied himself taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form. He humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus gave up glory to come and die. Jesus took on the form of a faithful, loyal, lowly servant to die for you. die for me, to die for all those whom we reckon unworthy, unfit of our friendship, of our table fellowship. He died for them. So Jesus's prayer quite simply is that he has a return to receiving his glory again, the glory that was always his. And so Paul describes what it's going to be like when he gets that glory back. Verse 9 in chapter 2 of Philippians, it says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And what is the end of this? To the glory of God the Father. That in the obedience of Jesus, the goodness of the Father is seen. That in the obedience of Jesus, the glory of God is made famous. This is what he calls us to, that in the faithfulness of your life, in the mundane ordinariness of it all, that in Monday morning, alarm clock going off, morning breath and all, that you could already be predisposed to live a life that glorifies God, that walking into work on time or early, that you could set yourself up to glorify God in being faithful to obey all that he's called you to do. We can glorify God in our giving, that we can glorify God in our going. That we can glorify God in the easy times and that we can glorify God in the difficult. And let me just tell you this plainly. If you don't purpose to glorify God in the mundane, you will not glorify God in the exceptional. We are trained, primed, and prepared to glorify God in the exceptional occasions of life by glorifying him in the mundane, the ordinary, and the boring. Some of us wonder. Man, I mean, I read a biographies of missionaries. I hear people come up and stand in front of the church, and they're going to Seattle or to Honduras, and, and, and why doesn't God ever call me to do these things? God calls you first and foremost to faithfully walk out your Christian life in the mundane, in the ordinary. Whether you live on Old Mill or Sale or Washington or Stonewall or Owl Tree or wherever it is you live, whatever county road that you live on, that that house, that city, and that street would be a place where someone might encounter Jesus your office, be it on a corner or be it in a cubicle, be it a fast food place or be it in corporate America, that your office, your manner of carrying yourself, your very existence, your personality, what you say, how they see you act, how they see you treat people, that every facet of your life would be an opportunity to see you glorify God and to welcome them to do it alongside you. We need to be a people who are content and satisfied and dedicated to glorifying God in the mundane so that if he deems necessary, in the midst of the exceptional, we are ready to glorify God. Amen? Let me pray for us. Father, I pray that you would move in our hearts as we prepare to take the supper together. God, that you would be glorified in our humility, that you would be glorified as we contemplate the sacrifice of your son. You are good and do good. And so God, would you be glorified in our presence and in our midst. Father, I pray for those who have yet to submit themselves to you. That as the plate is being passed, even then, they would reflect upon the goodness of the sacrifice of your son, Jesus. We submit these things to you in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.